Hello and welcome to the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. And this is episode 38. With me today is Nathan Fox in San Francisco. How's it going, Nathan? I'm great, man. You ran into some traffic on the way into work, huh? Yeah, so I usually get in my car and then plug in my work address and Google Maps tells me that everything's okay, but today it did not, and it had me going on some crazy loop, so I followed the loop and got into D.C. Did you listen to any podcasts on the way in? Uh, I don't, maybe this is hypocritical, but I don't usually listen to podcasts as of late, um, but I am listening to the book about Elon Musk. Oh, cool. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, so, yeah, he's an interesting guy. But the book I just read uh, before that was The Martian. Have you heard of that? Uh-uh. I mentioned this to my class last night, and I thought everybody would be like, oh, yeah, yeah. But no, no one's heard of it, apparently, um, except those who have. There's uh, 36,000 reviews on Audible for this book, and uh, it ranks about 47 among those reviews. Wow. In, in any case, if you've have you gone to the movies lately? Yeah, I have. So did you see the trailer with Matt Damon for the movie in which he gets stuck on Mars? I have not. Okay, so there... It, it, anyways, you can just search for The Martian and you'll see a trailer with Matt Damon. And it's about an astronaut who gets left behind on Mars because they thought he died and they had to take off quickly because of an emergency. And he gets stuck there and then... Uh, the movie will presumably be about his uh, his ordeals, but it's based on this book, and so I don't usually read fiction, but for whatever reason, I thought I'd get that book, and it was it was really good. It was well written and interesting and very realistic in my mind. So. Cool, that sounds awesome. Yeah, um, I love sci-fi, so that sounds like a good one. Yeah, no, I think you'll you'll like it. So thanks for the recommendation. Um, I guess just a reminder to all of our listeners out there that if you want to be a better reader, one of the best things you can do is just read books that interest you. And it doesn't really matter how highfalutin they are. So if uh, sci-fi is your thing, um, yeah, pick up The Martian and give it a shot. Uh, if, you, if you don't like it, don't, don't try to keep reading it. <laughs> Put it down and get something else. But if you like it and if it keeps you reading, then yeah, absolutely. Keep reading it. It's awesome. Um, yeah, I, I was glad you were late this morning, actually, because uh, when you texted me, I was still in bed. Uh, <laughs> I'm three hours behind you, but I also just am like a night owl. I don't know what you what you do. I mean, what, you get done teaching your class at like 10 p.m., right? Yeah, so for example, last night was class, and it ended around 10. And then there's always, you know, individual questions that kind of linger afterwards. So uh -huh. I finished around 10.30, but since I... I teach a class at the Patent and Trademark Office uh -huh. before that. So basically, I was teaching all day. I taught there, and then I came here and then taught that class. And so when I got done at 1030, I had a ton of emails. Um, and so basically, I left here at 130 last night. Oh, you stay there and work until 130? Yeah, I kind of... The thing is, is that I'm not a morning person. So if I don't respond to the email tonight, like when I get it at night, yeah. it's not going to happen until noon. And then I feel in a lot of cases that's really late for people. And so I try to, I try to get them all done and then I just, I sleep like a baby. You <laughs> just really. get, get home and just crash? 
Yeah, but I tend to wake up later. Well, actually, I don't because I have kids, so they they like to wake up and tell me what's going on. Right. So, I don't know. It's a, it's not always like that. I don't want to suggest that it's always one thirty. I usually try to finish up everything as quickly as I can and get out of here at eleven thirty, which means I get home around twelve and go to sleep around twelve thirty. So, yeah, my schedule is usually twelve thirty to seven thirty, maybe twelve thirty to eight, something like that. Wow. Um... I didn't realize you did that after work. I, I had figured you would just go straight home to the family. But I guess the kids are already in bed, so you might as well. Yeah, they're already asleep, and uh, I can get a lot of work done when I have sort of this idea that the sooner I finish, I can leave, I guess. Yeah. So it seems like a very productive time for me, too. No one is emailing me back, so that makes things go faster, too. So. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I also went and worked last night after my class. I... I I can't like go to sleep is the thing. Like I can't just, I'm teaching, you know, you're like on stage until 10 PM. It's just not realistic that I'm going to come home and be asleep by 11. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. then I end up like just killing time in a variety of different ways. Um, IE drinking, you know, like go find somewhere that has <laughs> <laughs> my standard move is like, go find somewhere that has Wi-Fi and beer and um, maybe a bite to eat. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a completely unhealthy lifestyle practice. <laughs> but uh, no, I do get a lot of shit done during that time. Uh, I, was, I was actually going to ask to see if you had any tips for how I can like dial it down quicker after work. But it sounds like you're doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I no, I don't have any good advice. I yeah. always try. I always want to go to bed earlier because that's when the kids are asleep. So it would make more sense to be asleep at that time too. But it's just, uh, it, that's not the pattern. You yeah, have to fight fight against that to to accomplish that. Yeah. Interesting. Well, what do we uh, what do we have on the agenda today? So uh, we have at least four things. We have some a question from Mike about uncommon word usages, which does happen on the test. Uh, then we, so he wants to know about what words are how they're used and in their uncommon ways, I guess. And then we have Matt. Who wants to figure out how to go faster on logical reasoning? He has taken our advice to slow down and he's dramatically increased his accuracy, but now he's wondering how do I close the gap and finish the section, hopefully, eventually. Uh, we have a question about bar passage rates at various schools. So if you're not familiar with this, this will probably make sense pretty quickly, but basically law schools have different bar passage rates. The, the better the school, uh, people tend to pass the bar at higher rates. That's not surprising. We'll talk about why. Uh, at least we think that is the case. And then yep. we have a question. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, nothing. I was agreeing. Yeah. Yep. And then um, we have a question from Bram on delaying his diagnostic, studying, I guess by that he means his first exam, uh, studying in Atlanta. He has some questions about that. And splitting games into worlds. That is a very common question. I get it all the time. And, of course, the answers I give are never perfectly satisfying, I think, to those who hear them. But at least I think that's the best answer we can come up with. At least I can come up with, so I'll be curious to see what you say. But, yeah, so those are the four things. Let's just uh, jump into Mike's question, Do you, unless you have anything you wanted to add. No, that's great. That's plenty to talk about. We've been uh, going longer in these episodes. Thanks for everybody who has given us feedback, by the way, about our new longer format. Um, that is 100% accidental, and it's just because Ben and I enjoyed talking to each other and bullshitting for extended lengths of time. So um, <laughs> we'll, uh, 
we'll try to keep it flowing, I guess. If you guys are happy with the longer format, we'll, we'll try to do our best. Uh, this is, we have four questions on the agenda, but the fourth one was really three questions. So six questions. So yeah, I think we've got plenty to talk about today. Yeah. So starting with Mike, Mike says, what are the most common, uncommon word usages on the LSAT? Quite frequently, I've noticed the term, quote, obtain, used in its formal context. The first time I encountered it, it threw me off. By the way, Mike, you're not alone. A lot of people are thrown off by that usage and don't pick the answer of a particular question I'm thinking of right now. But in any case, are there other words used in this way that every LSAT test taker should be aware of? Mike, uh, any thoughts on that? Sure. Well, first... I guess we should talk about obtain and how uh, obtain is used in an unusual fashion on the LSAT. Mm -hmm. the, the place where I have seen this the most is just in the rules for the logic games um, as the introduction to the rules. So it'll give a setup. It'll tell you what we're, you know, what we're organizing, putting clowns into clown cars or whatever. And then it'll say, right before the rules, it will say, the following must obtain. Okay. Mm -hmm. With a colon, and then it'll have a list of rules. Mm. And that does, people are like, what is that? Because no one would ever say that. That's a very lawyerly slash douchebaggery way of saying, <laughs> here are the rules, yeah. right? Isn't that, yeah. that's, all, that's all that means, right? The yeah. following must obtain just means these are the rules. Yeah. That's it. Now, that's the only time that I've seen obtain used in a weird way, but you, do you have another context in which they said obtain? Yeah, that's interesting, because I'd kind of uh, forgotten about the usage in the games. Partly, I think, now that we're talking about it, because I so quickly scan over that language, right? Whatever it is, the following rules must follow, or whatever they say... It's so common, I just, I think at this you point... You don't even I, see it because yeah. you're just looking at the rules. Yeah. I don't even read it, really. But um, the the one, the example that stuck out to me is there's a question about an economist who makes a prediction. And it's, in, it's in logical reasoning. And he makes a prediction about the economy. I think the idea is if the policy... If the policymakers don't change the current policy, the economy is going to fail or be doomed or whatever. And a critic says, hey, uh, the economy didn't fail, so you're wrong. And he says, the, it's a flaw question, I think. And the correct answer says something along these lines. It says, I think the economist pointed out that, well, the policymakers actually did change their policies. So my prediction was accurate. It just didn't have an opportunity to come about because my prediction was if you don't change your policies, you're going to have problems and they went ahead and changed their policies. So the fact that the economy is doing better is not evidence or does not prove that my, my prediction was bad uh, because the if clause was never triggered, if that makes sense. But I missed where they used the word obtain. Yeah, so the, the word obtain comes up in the correct answer. Um, I think it might be a reasoning question. It says uh, the conditions that... Oh, the conditions did not obtain. Did not obtain, and people are thrown off by it. And so, uh, like I was saying with to Mike, um, he's not alone. That's the correct answer, but a lot of people are like, I have no idea. 
what the heck, that doesn't make sense to me. So I'm going to go pick a different answer. So I, I guess it just we can translate it to just, it means happened. Yes. Or, or will happen. So the following must obtain means the following must happen. If you see an answer that says the conditions did not obtain, that just means the conditions did not happen. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And no one in, ever in the world would actually use obtain in that fashion. <laughs> I mean, a Supreme Court justice might. Maybe, although right. they're actually uh, pretty good writers. So I don't know if I've told you my history with, uh, I guess, older Supreme Court justices, but the, the modern bench is, is very good. Most of them are very good at writing. So I, I used to do legal writing consulting. Did, did I mention that before? No, I didn't know that. No. Yeah, so not, not, I don't want to sound uh, cooler than that. That sounds pretty cool. I actually worked for a, uh, a guy who, who had a company that, or does have a company that goes and uh, teaches attorneys how to write better. Uh, he's written several books, and uh, a lot of my work involved reviewing the briefs, or I should say, yeah, briefs of John Roberts before he became a Supreme Court justice, and then after he did, um, the opinions that he's written and so forth. But not just him, a lot of other justices as well, and how they um, do a lot of things that I think people think are wrong. So, for example starting a sentence with and they do it oh, okay. all the time and people are like, oh you can't do that and uh the the sort of the point of following their writing was to say look the the supreme court justices do this and this is actually a very natural way to write and they're giving legitimacy to it but uh i'm kind of digressing here the point is is that they're they are very good writers actually uh, on a lot of levels and sure. so they they probably don't use obtain in that weird way unless it had to for some legal reason well so. yeah but and then but the thing is when you're in law school you're going to be reading a whole hell of a lot of opinions by non-modern benches right yeah. so you will see them using sort of antiquated language quite frequently. This yeah. seems like an example of antiquated language that they're trying to slip in on the LSAT mm -hmm. to just make sure you can hang. Uh, what else is there besides obtain? The one, one that, the one that jumped out to me immediately as soon as I read um, Mike's question was consistent with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that they use consistent with on the LSAT to mean something very, very specific. Um, consistent with would mean, um, in normal usage, I think we would think consistent with means like that, like matching, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but on the LSAT consistent with just means not inconsistent. Yeah. So, and that's, it's bizarre kind of, right? This is, I really do think this is one where it's like, you have to learn this lesson because otherwise you're going to miss a question at some point. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that Ben and I are doing a podcast right now is consistent with the fact that I have a uh, glass lamp on my desk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because those two things are not inconsistent. So any two things are consistent unless they are inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah, I like to tell people sometimes to think of it as could be true. So totally. if something is consistent with something else, it's something that could be true, even if it has nothing at all to do with it. In fact, the, more, the less it has to do with it, the more likely it's something that could be consistent with Absolutely. what you right. initially said. Right. Totally. I'm trying to think of like a, a really like an LSAT context for this, but 
I'm kind of blanking a little bit. Um, they they would ask, what how do they ask it? They ask it. Um, you know, you remember that parrot question? The parrot? One, yeah, the parrot makes you get lung cancer. Whoa, what? So there's this question where uh, I think it's in the in the 30s or something. Okay. Where they talk about how owning a parrot increases your likelihood of getting lung cancer, which I think okay. is actually true. But um, they then said, but the government doesn't tax you for taking on this dangerous activity of owning a parrot, which might increase your chances of getting lung cancer. So in the same manner, the government uh, should not tax you for doing dangerous things like jumping off cliffs and stuff like that. Um, and then the question says, which one of the following principles is... Yeah, I just magically found it. It's in prep test 30. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, it says the question stem is actually each of the following principles is logically consistent with the columnist's conclusion except... Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, no, since I know what they mean by logically consistent with, um, I would expect that there could be completely irrelevant answers in here that are not the answer. Because if it's totally irrelevant, then it's logically consistent. That's exactly right. But it, so in order for it to be the answer to this question, again, it's an accept question. Each of the following is logically consistent, except. So there's four that are logically consistent. There's one that is logically inconsistent. The only way you can be logically inconsistent is to be like on target. Mm -hmm. You actually have to be on topic. Mm -hmm. It's like a must be false. You have to be on topic in order to be a must be false. Yeah. I guess that's exactly what this question is, huh? It's a must be false question. The must be false question and the, and the correct yeah. answers are things that could be true. Yeah, I could mean, be true or wrong. must be true or are totally irrelevant, i.e. could be true. Yeah. And then it's we're looking for the one that must be false. Okay. Yeah. All right. Great. Cool. I'm glad we talked about that. That's uh, that is one that like, you know, it's not the most important lesson you can learn, but it pops up uh from time to time in my classes. Uh, do you do you formally cover that at all, Ben, or is that oh, just something uh that... consistent with? No. Yeah. Uh I just cover it when it comes up. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I do it too. I think for a lot of these things, even if I thought about covering it, I would choose not to because in the absence of an example, totally, it does it doesn't make sense, and so it's better for people, I think, to encounter it, be totally. perplexed by it, and then say, "Well, here's here's what's going on," and then, oh, yeah. okay, now it makes sense. Well, right. If you try to do like the encyclopedic presentation of every possible LSAT issue, then next thing you know, you're teaching like the test master's course, mm -hmm. which is just like the super long, boring, you know, pedantic kind of a drawn out. <laughs> context-free um, drinking from the fire hose of information and it's like everybody's just drowning yeah so yeah I do think that's one where it's like you either have to teach it via an example like people need to get burned by it mm -hmm. essentially mm -hmm. right you get burned by it and then you remember yeah you know it's interesting you mentioned that uh, I get a lot of people who will say something like oh uh, two mosts is a sum <laughs> Yeah. And I think it's like precisely what you're saying. They're pulling out these like little nuggets of lessons or something that they've learned from test masters or power score or something. And like, yeah, in some contexts that's true, but it really depends on what groups you're talking about. Like, I don't, you know, I wouldn't just 
barge into a, an answer choice. Well, there's two two most, so that means some. I mean, I think I, I don't want them to feel bad, but it's I feel like definitely a, a, a tip that's lacking context and, and not really helpful unless you understand what's going on. Yeah, I mean, if we tried to, because if we tried to do all of those tips, there would be 500 of them. Yeah. And then, again, they would all be context-free and they would make no sense. Mm -hmm. So this is, I, you and I seem to have pretty similar um, teaching styles, which is, hey, let's just do a bunch of questions and let's make some mistakes. And then those mistakes are going to be good opportunities to learn. Mm -hmm. And you're going to actually learn because you're going to be invested in it. You're going to be pissed off. Why did I miss this question that mentions consistent with? What the hell is this meaning of consistent with? And then we can talk about how they use it on the LSAT differently. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Any other ones? I, I wrote down a couple others on the agenda here yeah, that I so thought might be interesting. but No, I like your, uh, well, I like both of them. Uh, if, but only if is interesting because I think it throws people off. But it's not any different than if and only if, which also throws people off. I just tell people that if and only if or if but only if means the arrows go both ways. That's the way I teach it too. When you see if and only if, make the arrow go both ways. When you see if, but only if, you, you go, what the hell? Who would ever say if, but only if? Mm -hmm. But again, just make the arrow go both ways. So that's, that's weird. I, I do think that people in normal everyday life, they would say if, and they would also say only if, in a lot of situations where they really mean if, but only if, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and vice versa. I think we're just really sloppy about the way we use language in everyday life. Yeah. Um, so on the LSAT, you do have to memorize, you know, if then, you have to memorize only if, and then you have to memorize if and only if. Yeah. Which is the combination of those two things. But any LSAT class is going to teach you all of that stuff. Um, unless... Yeah, so I think unless the LSAT uses the correct, the logical definition of unless, but people get it mixed up all the time, I would say because of their parents. I think it's their parents' fault, and it's something that they can be mad at their parents about. Uh, not mad, but they can definitely blame them for. Um, tell me if you agree with this, and that is, when you're a kid and you say something, your parents say to you, you can't have dessert unless you eat your veggies. Okay. There's an implication there that's not technically accurate. What is the implication? Yeah, so I think what they really mean there is if and only if. Yeah. Because they're saying, what, what, their parent, what the parents are really saying is, you can't have when they say you can't have your dessert unless you eat your veggies. They're saying and you can if you do eat your veggies. Yeah, like if you ate your veggies and then said, "Okay, I'm ready for my dessert," and your parents said, "No," there <laughs> there's other necessary <laughs> conditions. There'd be a lot of problems, and the parents would feel, "Oh yeah, well, I I did say uh, you can't have dessert unless you eat your veggies, and you did. So now I have to give you your dessert." No, that's not true. You could just keep piling on but you can't have right. dessert unless you do your homework you can't have your dessert unless you go to bed which will mean you can't have it till tomorrow it could just go on and on but that's not what they meant but that's what they yeah. said and so yeah i think we so learned the lesson the wrong way totally or in real life we would say like you know um you get invited to a party and you'll say like i'll go unless jimmy goes and it's like 
what you're kind of saying there in real life, in real life usage, you're saying, all right, well, I'm planning to be there. I will be there unless Jimmy's there. If Jimmy's there, then I'm not going to be there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when you say I'll go unless Jimmy goes on the LSAT, what you're really saying is um, I will go, I, I will go. If Jimmy's there, then I, that's my only opportunity not to go. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, I might, might go, go. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah, I might go anyway, even if Jimmy is there. And that's like, that's not, that's, so yeah, so there uh, on the LSAT, it definitely departs from how we would uh, use that language in real life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, cool. the, the, the saving grace here, or the way to get around this problem, at least for me, is when I get, when the intuition is not clicking for unless, or I just want to make sure I'm on the right page, I'll replace it with if not and yep. make everything that comes after it the an if clause that's negated and everything that comes before it a then clause. That's Yeah, so it's, you know, I'll go unless Jimmy goes translates to I'll go if not Jimmy goes. Mm -hmm. You can rearrange that. If Jimmy doesn't go, then I will go. Yes. Yeah. And that leaves open the possibility that even if Jimmy does go, if Jimmy does go, then there's no rule. There's no right? rule. The rule is if Jimmy doesn't go, then I will go. Mm -hmm. Now, if Jimmy does go, then I can do what I want. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, that is definitely not how real life, none of those phrases um, are used in real life the same way they're used on the LSAT. It's very technical. Yep. Why do they do that? What I, I guess because that's how statutes are written. Yeah, probably. Or... Um... Yeah, contracts, you know, contracts. Right. They're right. going to hold you to the letter of the the wording. I th right. I think in most cases. So That's so weird though because, you know, definitions like change over time. Um there is no such thing as like a frozen dictionary definition that stays the same forever. Um Yeah, I've, but some of these words like well, you know, in contracts like they will define and and or because of the ambiguities and they'll define other terms. I think they just have to set on some sort of convention. And so they're saying Ugh. we have to do this to avoid legitimate confusion and also, of course, opportunis opportunistic confusion. Oh, I didn't think it meant that. That is so horrible. I am so, I have to, I am so glad I'm not a lawyer. I really, <laughs> I, I, I would do any other job besides being a lawyer. That is the last thing on earth that I would want to do. Sorry, <laughs> listeners. Good luck. Yeah. I know you're going to have an awesome career as a lawyer. Enjoy. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, did we uh, kill this one? I think, think so, yeah. Okay. All right. So the next one is um, from Matt. And he says, I will be taking the test in October, and I have since changed my approach to logical reasoning. I have been slowing myself down and have only been answering about 18 to 20 questions per section. My accuracy has improved significantly. Yay. I usually miss either zero or one of the questions that I answer. That's great news. Sounds like he really understands what he's doing. If I miss one, it is usually in the 14 to 18 range. My question to you is how will I get to the point where I'm answering 23 to 25 questions by the time the section is all over while maintaining this newly found accuracy? And he goes on to say, I've always been a slow reader, so I'm worried that this has created a score ceiling for me. I also feel that I have a very good understanding of the logical reasoning sections and I have approaches to every question type. Thus, I feel if I comprehend the passage well, 
and I will almost always then I will almost always get the right answer. So I sh so should I gradually be trying to increase my speed, or do you believe that it will come naturally with more practice? What do you think? I first just say you know thanks for the letter, Matt. I'm glad your accuracy has improved so much. Um, I. I feel pretty strongly that you should not try to push it on the speed. I, I feel like speed should be effortless. You should not make an effort toward speed. I, I feel like accuracy is the really important thing and that if you try to train yourself to go faster, all you're going to be doing is skimming the surface and you're going to start making mistakes and very possibly end up going slower in the long run. Um, the way I go fast is by reading the argument as slowly and carefully as I need to, and by making a really strong prediction and having a damn good idea what I'm looking for most of the time when I go down into the answer choices. And when that happens, then it's like the correct answer is just glowing on the page. It's like the, the correct answers just start jumping off the page at me. And when that happens, then I end up going fast by not trying to go fast. So, you know, it looks like Matt's already, he's getting 17 to 19 points out of the logical reasoning sections. Mm -hmm. So he's in a place where he's already like probably 160 or above, knocking on the door of 160, 165. Um... My concern would be if he tried to push it to finish the section that, yeah, his accuracy would collapse and, and his speed would collapse and he'd find himself back down where he was at the beginning. So maybe instead of trying to get to question 23 or 25, I would, if I were Matt, just try to maybe make it, I don't know, I... I don't like the idea of striving to get any deeper into the section. I, I think I think I would continue doing what I'm doing if I was Matt and just maybe, you know, just do a ton of practice and over time he find, he'll, I think he would find that he's reaching question number 21 and then do some more practice and some more practice and some more practice and then he would find that he's reaching question number 22. Um, I would just always keep accuracy as the primary consideration and let the speed come if it comes. Yeah, I I agree with that uh, for the most part. I don't have as much of a problem with Matt trying to speed up a little bit when it comes to the questions that are earlier in the section. And by that, I mean just maybe being more confident in the answer choices that he finds instead of necessarily double checking between two answer choices and so forth. If he does that and he finds that he starts getting things wrong, then I would say stop. But I, sometimes I wonder if people overthink the easier questions in attempt to, and what I'm talking about here is in the answer choices themselves. So not speeding up reading the passage, but speeding up how they look at the answers as they go through them, cross them out, if they find one that's correct, uh, and then they 
quickly check the remaining answers and they're feel confident that they're wrong, I would say, okay, pick that answer and move on. Sometimes I think people might linger there. Yeah, so that's a good that's a good point, I think. Um, sorry to talk over no, you. No, no, go I, ahead. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. Uh, I find myself going fast on the answer choices. I mean, I think I was talking about this last episode or a couple episodes ago, that um, because I've done so much practice and because I read the argument so carefully and because I'm able to make really good predictions, um, that helps me to sort through the answer choices very quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that is one, I agree with you. I think some people, you know, in, a, in an attempt to be careful, which is great, you do need to be careful and you do need to pick the right answer after all. I mean, you're not going to score well if you're getting questions wrong, mm -hmm. but you have to get questions right. Yeah. But um, when you've already found a great answer or what you think is a very strong answer, you don't need to then try to sell yourself on the idea of C or D or E being the correct answer. As a matter of fact, I would probably do the opposite of that, right? Mm -hmm. Which is every answer choice has an 80% chance of being wrong to begin with. And when I fall in love already with A or B or C, because it perfectly matches my prediction. Mm -hmm. You know, I was skeptical of it, but then I read it and I went, oh shit, this is exactly what I was looking for. Well, then when I read D and E, you know, my, my prior assumption was that they had an 80% chance of being wrong. Mm -hmm. But now that I've found a great answer, it has to be more like 90 or 95% chance that this answer is wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to read it, but I'm definitely not going to try to help it. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be like looking for reasons why this might be the right answer. Yeah, I agree. Instead, I'll just be like looking to spot a reason why the answer is wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's maybe just a fundamental difference between what I do on the test and what the typical student does on the test. Mm -hmm. Like the, the typical student thinks that they're looking for the right answer. And I'm sort of more like, no, I'm sorting through getting rid of the bullshit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have both ways, right? Mm -hmm. there's, there's identifying the correct answer and there's also eliminating the four wrong answers. And the truth is I'm doing both of those. But what I'm not ever doing is trying to make sense of what might be a nonsensical answer choice, especially after I've already found the correct answer. Yeah. I agree. And to your point about doing a lot of questions... I think that Matt could benefit from that immensely if he's doing what he's doing now, which is approaching the, correct, the, the questions in the right way. He's thinking through them, which is why he's doing so well on the ones that he's answering. And by continuing to practice that method, I think he will get faster. Um, for some, like a year ago or something, I, I got really into books about the brain. And I don't know if we've talked about this before, but the, the the best analogy that I can think of is when you drive home and you pull into your drive driveway and you all of a sudden realize you're home, you didn't realize that you had been driving. It was an automatic process. That is something that happens to us for everything 
that we repeat over and over. Um, mm. And so apparently, uh, according to these books I read, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but for pretty much anything you try to do over and over again, your brain tries to automate it so that it can free up mental space to focus on other things. Um, and so I think if, if someone is practicing the logical reasoning questions in the correct way, and they're not finishing the section, but they go and do a lot of them, their brains are going to start to automate a lot of things. I mean, you, you and I have talked about this, I think, before, but you start reading a passage, and you're a third of the way through it, and, you're, and your mind is already telling you, this is probably going to be a correlation causation flaw. And it, sometimes it's not, but your brain is priming you to find the flaw because you've told yep. it to find it so many other ways. And, yeah. and I think this can be the serious downside to people who don't try to find the flaw before they go into the answer choices because they start developing a different skill. You start training your brain to think, okay, read the passage and then look for an answer that feels good given what I said or read, but not necessarily preparing for that answer. It's a totally different skill and it's not a skill that I never use. Sometimes I read the passage and I'm like I have no idea what's going on. Maybe yeah, the yeah. answer will save me. The answers will save me here. But that is that is the last resort. It's not the first approach. But if you practice that way, then that's the skill you're going to develop. And I think that's actually what happens with a lot of people who do I don't mean to harp on test masters a lot today, but test masters they give people a ton of questions, which I think is a good idea, but if people are practicing those bajillion questions in the wrong way, they're developing a different skill set. Totally. Well, well, a reactive rather than a proactive approach, right? Yes, exactly. And and reactive, I mean, it just doesn't work as well on the LSAT. Again, 80% of the answer choices are wrong. And if you get down into the answer choices too quickly, you're reading nonsensical, irrelevant, professionally written traps. And the, the job of those wrong answers is to try to convince you that they're right. Mm -hmm. And so now you're just at the whim of the test makers and letting them batter you around all over the place with their craftily designed wrong answers. And instead, you should be really trying to answer the questions before you even get down into the answer choices. That's, that's the skill that we're really trying to develop because that's ultimately how you really go fast with the high accuracy. So I... Again, I guess, yeah, I mean, I go back to my original advice for Matt, which is just, hey, why don't you go ahead and just keep doing exactly what you're doing? I mean, I'd love to see Matt get 19 out of 20 on 10 tests in a row. Mm -hmm. my, my guess is that he can't get 19 out of 20, 10 tests in a row, because he'll actually start getting to number 21, 22, 23. If, if he gets 19 out of 20... 10 times in a row, he won't be stuck at 19 out of 20. He'll, he will be getting faster yes. without even trying. Yes. Right? I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what's going to happen, I think, is his brain starts to say, oh, okay, I see what you're trying to do here, and I'm going to help you do this, these things a little bit faster as I start to automate some of this. Totally. <sighs> um, Absolutely. Hey, I had something else to say about proactive and reactive approaches. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people get sucked into the reactive approach. And by re reactive, we're talking about reading the passage really quickly and then sort of reacting. How do I feel about answer A? How do I feel about answer B? Oh, yeah, B seems like, yeah, that might work. As opposed to proactively going into the answer choices with a sense of what you're looking for 
and in a lot of cases knowing exactly what you're looking for. But um, I think it's so seductive because a lot of the easier questions, uh, you can definitely find the correct answer with the reactive approach. And so you start studying for the yeah. test, and it's mentally easier just to read the passage and then say, well, let's see what the answers say, as opposed right. to forcing yourself to think through this stuff. And you get answers right, and you're like, yeah, this is working. Um, and that's fine for those questions, but it's not the fastest approach, and it's not going to get you to 25 questions, and it's not going to get you through the harder questions. Yeah, totally. I, I, what you just said, um, I hear it all the time, is, uh, you know, well, why this might work, or why, why doesn't this work? And it, it's like, well, hold on a second. Because the way that I would have discussed the question in class would have been, I'm going to read the argument very carefully, and I'm going to immediately spot this big giant hole in the argument. Then the question stem is going to say, uh, which one of the following, if assumed, will allow the conclusion to be properly drawn? And I'm going to go, well, that's a sufficient assumption question. And I spotted this giant hole in the argument. And to fill that giant hole in the argument, the answer has to say almost exactly if x then y mm -hmm. okay that's the big hole in the argument it's a sufficient assumption question we have to bridge that gap the answer must say if x then y and then i'll go down into the answer choices and sure enough it jumps right off the page at me and i go that's the answer and then someone chimes in with like well but why won't c work mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's it's sort of like well um you mean besides the fact that I knew exactly what the answer was before I even read any of the answer choices? And then sure enough, like you go look at C, and C just says some bullshit. It has some words from the argument, but it doesn't do exactly what we were looking for. And in that case, we, we're going to pick the one that does exactly what we're looking for. And I don't really give a shit that much what C says. So it's not like I'm being a dick and I don't want to try to help people understand, but the, the legitimate, the real way that I got to that answer was by answering it before looking at the answer choices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you're, if you're in the reactive mode instead, and if you're trying to like shoehorn in, well, yeah, why won't, wouldn't C, won't, won't that do it? It's like, no, no, <laughs> you, you need to be doing the test on like a different, plane, like a higher level kind of a thing, mm -hmm. where you're telling them what the answers are going to be, and then you can just really easily dismiss all of their trap, bullshit, irrelevant, confusing answer choices. Mm -hmm. I agree. I don't know. Yeah, I, that's, that's that. I mean, there are times where you really are going to have to sort carefully through all five answer choices and there are times where you're going to be comparing two answer choices back and forth with each other but particularly on certain question types um sufficient assumption being one of the main ones you know main conclusion being another one of the main ones you really have to just decide before you get to the answer choices what you want the answer to be and that's how you go fast mm -hmm. yeah I couldn't agree more. Cool. All right. So uh, the next one is uh, well, I think you got this right. Question: If you want to take yeah, it. yeah. So 
this is a this we're shift gears a little bit. We're gonna get off the LSAT for a minute and talk about law school and admissions and whatnot. Then we're gonna go back to uh, some more LSAT stuff. So, um, I have a student who just recently made it through one of my classes. Um, he improved his LSAT score pretty significantly, but he ended up in like the you know 150-ish kind of a range, and. Um, He's very excited that he got into Golden Gate and Laverne College of the Law, which I guess is down in Ontario. Couldn't have done it without your help. All right, thanks. That's nice. Um, I need your advice. Golden Gate cost of attendance is about $69,000, while Laverne's is $55,000. And the difference is in tuition. Laverne costs $25,000 a year. Golden Gate is about double that which is just, I guess I know that, that $50,000 a year is what law school costs, but God damn it, that's a lot of money. <laughs> um, living expenses are essentially the same, I guess, in Ontario and um, Ontario, California, and, uh, and San Francisco, California. Maybe the living expenses are the same if you don't live in San Francisco and you commute in to Golden Gate. Mm. Um, anyway, the tuition is double at Golden Gate. Living expenses are essentially the same. I like Golden Gate, but it's a lot more expensive. It's hard for me to, to decide because all that matters to me is passing the bar. Golden Gate bar passage rate last year was 46%, while Laverne's bar passage rate was 67%, obviously a huge difference. Should I completely relocate to Ontario, California to save money, or should I pay the extra tuition dollars to stay in the Bay Area where I am comfortable? Do you think the jump in bar passage rate for Laverne was a fluke and they'll come back down? Basically, what should I do? What school should I go to? Um, that's a big issue. That's a big question. And it's a question that I'm sure a lot of people are wrestling with right now. If not, it's a question that you're going to be wrestling with uh, at some point when you decide where to go to law school and whether to go to law school. Um, but the reason why I wanted to talk about this particular email on the show is that I think this student is making a pretty major error in logic. And um, Ben, do you want to talk about what that, uh, what that flaw is? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, the potential flaw here is that you have two schools and one has a higher bar passage rate, substantially higher bar passage rate than the other. And so we look at that and we say, oh, okay, so this if you go to this school, it must help you do better on the bar, um, which is why they have a higher bar passage rate. Therefore, I should go there to take advantage of that benefit. But the reality is if, and I don't, what what is the difference between these two schools? Do do what do does um Laverne's is that how you say it? Laverne? Laverne, yeah. Does that have a is that is that a higher ranked school or I had never even heard of Laverne before I got this email. Um I am gonna look it up right now and see if it is an ABA accredited school. I'm getting some, yeah, where is this ranking? 
I don't know. I can't figure it out. I'm going to assume that it's an ABA accredited school. Okay. Well, uh, I guess my one thought would be if it's a if it's attracting higher scoring students, students who score higher on the LSAT or higher on the or have a higher GPA, then the higher bar passage rate is probably due to the fact that the students who are drawn to that school are higher performing students, not that the school has anything to do with helping them pass the bar. But if it's a if it's a lower ranked school, or I mean, it's a school I've never heard of, but I have heard of Golden Gate. So maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe they're doing something there that actually does help people prepare for the bar. Maybe they offer classes on that because they realize that their students were not passing and now they're proactively helping their students, which most law schools don't do. I mean, but there's a lot of things that we'd have to figure out. We can't just jump to the conclusion that because their bar passage rate is higher, that the school is actually what's causing that bar bar rate to be higher. That's a classic correlation causation issue, and I think we need to dig deeper. Yeah, that and that's the first point that I wanted to make here, is that this is, you know, when you simply say Golden Gate bar passage rate was 46% and Laverne's was 67%, therefore Laverne is causing people to pass the bar at a higher rate, you're making the correlation causation flaw. Uh, correlation can suggest causation, but correlation does not at all have to prove causation, and so we would need to dig deeper here. Um, the very first thing that I thought of was simply just selection bias. If Laverne has a, I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't, they, it's a, they're a regional school, right? I mean, I've heard of Golden Gate because I live in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, someone in LA would have probably heard of Laverne and not Golden Gate. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, Laverne is attracting, if, if it's true, that for whatever reason, Laverne is attracting a higher um, average quality student or a more qualified student or students with better GPAs, better LSAT scores, um, then that is going to, by itself, bias their bar results for the positive. Mm-hmm. But it, has, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with a causal kind of a relationship. So, for example, you know, to take like an extreme example, if you get into Georgetown, but you also get into Golden Gate, Georgetown's bar passage rate might be 90%, 95%, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. Some, something crazily high, most likely, mm -hmm. right? Golden Gate's bar passage rate is 46%. But if you are you and you get into Georgetown and you get into Golden Gate, if you choose Golden Gate, that does not mean that you're going to have a 46% bar, pa bar passage rate. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. That's Your talent put you in the level where you could have gone to Georgetown where everyone who tries passes the bar. Mm -hmm. But that's also going to be true about you if you decide to go to Golden Gate for whatever reason. Yeah. So that's where I, I think you can't just look at the surface, look at these numbers. You, you do have to start asking some more pointed questions. And yeah, I would love to know. I mean, is Laverne actively doing things to increase the, you know, educationally, are they, for example, like you said, Ben, are they actually offering bar prep classes as part of your undergrad, uh, part of your law school education? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, it's absurd to me that a law school would not do that. I, I, like, I can't believe they don't do that. I can't, like Hastings, I can't believe that I went to Hastings and they did not include as part of your education at Hastings, how do they not include bar, <laughs> bar prep? Yeah, it's interesting now that we're talking about it. I never really thought about it before, but it seems like it'd be severely in their interest to do so because that affects a number that reflects on them. <laughs> right. One, one, it is severely in your interest. Although maybe it's not severely in your interest because now it's like a liability thing almost. Like the people, if, if you taught them bar prep and they don't pass the bar, then they're going to get pissed at you. My guess is actually that's probably why they're doing it or that's a major reason why they, why they do that. Just so that they can pass on the responsibility to like Barbary or to Kaplan or to whoever else. Like, oh, well, oh, you didn't pass the bar? Well, you can get mad at them. It's not us. You know, we don't teach, we don't teach bar prep. That's beneath us. Yeah. <laughs> we just charge you $50,000 a year to go to school for three years. And then once you graduate, then you have to pay another $5,000 to Barbary or Kaplan. And they'll teach you bar prep in a grueling all summer class. And then you can go fail the bar and then you can blame Barbary and Kaplan. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I, if your bar rates, but their bar rates are still going to reflect on you. It still it seems my gut reaction would be to take control of the situation, at least increase it. You know, yeah, you do have the liability, but one would think that that would be a sensible thing to do. Is just why then why the hell are they not doing it? I mean, you know, I had a bad law school experience, right? I did not enjoy my time at Hastings. I probably would not have enjoyed my time at any school because I really wasn't destined to be a lawyer and I just shouldn't have been in law school at all. Mm-hmm. But um, the, from my perspective, the second and especially the third year of law school was a complete waste of time. I mean, it was like just continuing the same sort of academic competition. We're going to be taking these elective classes where we're going to dig into these esoteric little areas of the law just so that we can all take an exam so that we can all get graded so that we can all get put into ranks Mm -hmm. and it's like are you kidding me you can't take one or two classes or you can't take the whole sixth semester you know the second semester of your third year of law school you can't take that whole semester and just devote it to bar pass to to bar prep Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you? Why would that not be an option? Yeah. It's law school. What is the point of law school if it isn't for you to pass the bar? I think, I think uh, it gets back bizarre. to your earlier point about uh, how the law schools perceive themselves. I think that the more a school does that, the more the school gears the classes towards practical skills like writing, which is... Um, a, at least when I was in school, was severely relegated to, it was relegated to three L's teaching some of those writing classes, which is crazy. I did it as a two L. I was a (laughs) a legal writing and research TA as a two L. And I was like giving direct feedback to the, to the one L's. That is such, that is a scam. I mean, no offense to your teaching at that time, but people just have no idea. Even the adjunct professors who come in, who've been working for a couple of years, are nowhere near the skill level or understanding of what necessarily partners or people who have been practicing for a long time. Not that they could get partners to teach that class, but you can get professors who actually know what's going on if they actually cared. But uh, anyways, so I think that the law schools have resisted changes like that because it starts to turn law school into sort of a, a trade school or... Oh, a school where they actually teach you real skills? Yeah. 
<laughs> that you can use to actually get a job. Yes, exactly. So, so. Or we could sit around in a big, you know, classroom and like loftily debate and pretend that we're all going to become Supreme Court justices. I think that's what law professors want to do, you know? Well, it makes sense that that's what law professors want to do because they went to Harvard and Stanford and Yale and then clerked for a Supreme Court justice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they legitimately have claim to being able to do some of that kind of work. But when you're at a middle-of-the-road school like Hastings, um, you know, exactly one of those people in the room are ever going to be more than a county judge somewhere. Yeah. And so, oh, fine. I mean, for that one person, you know, that might have a, cho a chance somewhere 40 years from now to be uh, on a circuit court somewhere uh, and actually writing opinions that matter. Okay, I guess. Um, I guess that's good. But what about the 99% of the rest of the class that just wants to um, pass the bar and become a like working lawyer in the trenches. Yeah. Well, I think they're trying to justify the high price tag too, you know, like this is all kind of intertwined with money and the system that was once was and is changing. Now. I, suppose, I mean, it just seems like you could make the counter argument just as easily though, as far as like money is concerned. If you're going to charge me $150,000 for, for school, at least deliver the value of making it so that I'm going to pass the bar exam so that I don't have to pay $5,000 <laughs> to Kaplan and Barbary and so that I don't have to then pay $5,000, $10,000 to an, a private bar tutor to t actually teach me how to write. Yeah. Like, really? You can't do that in the three years that I'm in your law school? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, uh, I think they're concerned about how that would look, you know? Um, oh, it would look terrible if they actually provided value that would be, <laughs> i mean boy that would that would be so beneath them yeah. for them to actually do that all right i'll i'll stop ranting but that's... i'm not saying it's i'm not saying it's good and i think the schools are actually changing dramatically i know that the university or denver uh, law school has done a huge revamp of their legal writing program and tried to make it a much higher priority which means more money for the department and or if there is a department or whatever that is in the law school but um they're reacting to the demands of law firms and people who are saying, look, law school is expensive. We get attorneys and they can't do jack and we have to train them and we'd like you to prepare them better. And some schools are responding to that. So, so yeah, back to this, you know, back to this email from my student. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> it, I don't know anything about Laverne, mm -hmm. but it would be interesting to know whether, hey, Laverne, are there any Laverne students listening to the podcast? Are there any Laverne, uh, you know, anybody associated at all with Laverne? Can you tell us why Laverne has this jump in bar passage rate? Uh, did they just start selecting better in advance? Uh, or did they actually change something about the education at Laverne? Are they doing a more practical kind of a program where they're actually teaching people how to write? Um, you know, how to, how to, and, and how to pass and the law, the fundamental law that you need in order to pass the bar. Um, are they actually doing that at Laverne now? Or the other hypothesis, I guess it's the null hypothesis is how, it could just be absolutely a fluke, mm -hmm. right? Like the numbers can go up and down without there being any cause at all. So anyway, those are the questions that we would need to ask, um, 
to determine whether this is worth it uh, or not. I think my gut here, this is my student, and, and I, I know him and I, I want what's best for him. And I think probably if, if I'm not able to find satisfactory answers to all of those questions, I think my gut would say you should do whatever it takes to minimize the debt that you're going to incur in law school. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're comfortable in the Bay Area, but you're going to pay over the course of three years, you're going to pay $75,000 more to go to Golden Gate. And I, leaving the bar passage rates completely aside, I just think that most students, especially when they're talking about going to regional law schools like this, they should do absolutely everything they can to minimize the amount of debt that they're going to take on. Um, Wait, how'd you get 75? I get 45. Set 15. Difference? It's 70 minus 55, right? Which is 15. I know he said it costs 25. Anyways, uh, I'm, oh yeah, I, I guess the, the email is a little bit unclear. It says Laverne costs 25,000 and Golden Gate is about double that. Oh, but maybe Laverne's cost of living actually is lower. Or, hi or higher, which would be weird. Because he's saying... Oh, or higher. That makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, but he says 69K for Golden Gate. 55K. But then he says 25K and Golden Gate to double that. Hmm. Well, okay, whatever. It's either 25,000 <laughs> a year difference or it's 15,000 a year difference. So it's either $75,000 for three years difference or it's $45,000 a year or $45,000 for three years mm -hmm. difference. And either way, those are big, big numbers. You know, I mean, that's, that's a down payment on a house. And so um, I, I really would recommend, I think, without knowing anything else, I think I would recommend minimizing your debt because you are going to be paying that debt back and it's going to follow you around forever. And, uh, you know, the, then, then there's this other thing, which is... And I, this is like a little bit like harsh reality. If the best law school you can get into has a bar passage rate of 67%, okay, I'm assuming that this student applied all over the place and the best school that he could get into had a bar passage rate of 67%. If that's the case, then I can't put him at more than a 67% chance of passing the bar. I just can't. There's, there's no way I could get, I, I would have to get two to one odds in order to bet. Um, you know, I, I guess I would, I, would, I would give no more than two to one odds on him passing the bar. Okay. Which sucks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that, that's, that sucks. That's sad. Nobody wants to hear that. But, like, he, there's a very real chance that he's going to go to law school and fail the bar. Because at the best school that he could get into, or the highest ranked, whatever, the highest bar passage rate school that he could get into, mm -hmm. one third of the people fail, fail the bar. And the people that go to that school are people like him. They're people with the same LSAT scores and the same GPAs and the same backgrounds as him. Mm -hmm. And so he has a pretty significant chance of failing the bar. And that doesn't matter what school he actually goes to. I'm just basing that 
estimation on the best bar passage rate of any school he could get into. It actually probably would say it's a little bit lower than that because, you know, he's in at Golden Gate, he's in at Laverne. Golden Gate has a less than 50% bar passage rate. Laverne has a two-thirds bar passage rate. I'm going to call this guy something like even money to two-thirds chance of passing the bar. Very real chance that he'll fail the bar. People who fail the bar once have a very real chance of failing the bar again. People who fail the bar twice have a very real chance of never passing the bar. So, and yeah. at that point, now how much debt are you in? You know, you don't get your money back. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, so are you suggesting maybe he should reconsider law school? Yes, I am. Um, and I, I'm not like really addressing that specifically to this student. Mm -hmm. I would say that to everybody. I'm not saying that personally based on what I know of him. And in fact, I know that he has, you know, he does work in a law firm now and it seems like he's got some connections and it seems like he's got some really good ideas about what he wants to do once he graduates. And, you know, I'm, you, everybody has to look at their own particular circumstances. Mm -hmm. But you also, I think, have to be realistic. You know, there, I think everyone goes, so many people have like these big dreams and they, they look at the numbers and they go, oh yeah, well, I know a lot of people like me go to law school and then fail the bar, but I mean, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's what everybody says. Mm -hmm. that's, nobody, nobody goes to law school planning to fail the bar, yeah. even though one third of the room is going to fail the bar or half the room is going to fail the bar. And no one thinks they're in that half. Dude, I can't believe that's true for Golden Gate. That's crazy. That means half 46%. your class is pursuing something else with a... Wow. Yeah, or that, you know, that's probably first-time bar passage rate, so... But still, like, uh, um, repeaters are gonna, like you said, they have an even higher chance of failure. So what's the actual bar passage rate? Like, 60% yeah, or something? Right, that's they more should... Do they publish that eventual... They should publish eventual bar well, passage I rate. I wondered, though, if that is what they're publishing here. Because they're saying bar passage rate as opposed to first bar passage rate. I'm guessing that's first time bar passage rate. But yeah, it doesn't say in the email. That's another pointed question to ask. I mean, actually now I'm wondering, it seems more likely they'd publish this one because as a school, they'd want to publish the best one. The highest one. Well, but he might not be reading like numbers published by the school, right? He might be reading third party. Yeah. Um, well, so I, the reason I, I was asking about the money a little bit was because I do agree you want to minimize your debt, but I would be, to me, um, I mean, this is assuming he decides to go to law school. I completely agree with you on that question. That's the first question you're going to want to ask yourself, but uh, maybe to help you make that decision, you'd want to think about how much debt you're going to go into. But once you decide to go, I would seriously weigh the difference between living in Ontario, California, and in the Bay Area, because where he goes to law school, given the fact that he's going to a regional law school, is largely going to affect where he ends up practicing. And if he already has connections in the Bay Area, he's going to pay more, but maybe it's worth it, especially if that's where he wants to end up. Yeah, I guess I... You know, knowing him and knowing the connections that he has, I think he could go to Laverne and come back and still use his connections in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. He it sounded like he worked in this uh, firm for a long time, and he's got like really good relationships there. So I think he could go away and come back. But yeah, that's a, that's another great point. I mean, when we're looking at a regional law school, and all these law schools are certainly regional law schools, um, you're gonna build a network 
in the very local area where you decide to go to school. Mm -hmm. So that is something to definitely think about. Uh, it's a tough decision. Um, uh, if I had my druthers, if I were the boss, mm -hmm. I would tell him to turn down all of these offers, continue studying for the LSAT, see if he can improve his LSAT score to more like 155, 160-ish. Okay. Reapply, get into much better schools, get much better scholarship offers, and then I would feel much more comfortable with him going to law school. Yeah. Um, if he decides to go now, I don't think there's any causal relationship. I don't know, but I doubt that there's a causal relationship between where he, which one of these schools he chooses and what his chances are of passing the bar. So I would not make the decision based on that. I would make the decision based on other factors. Yeah, I agree on the LSAT thing. I think a lot of times people feel like, oh, I don't, I don't have the time or the, the will to sit down and study for this test again. I'm not saying this is his situation. I have no idea. But for a lot of people I talk to, and I'm thinking to myself, we're talking three months here, maybe six, and this is going to dramatically affect how much money you end up getting or saving, where you go to law school, a whole host of things that are going to have implications for years if you're serious about going to law school. It's hard for me to understand sometimes yeah. why the trade-off that people are. I'll, I'll do the. I'll play the student. Okay. Okay. Um, but I'm already 23. <laughs> 23. Don't, and if don't I start wait another year, then I'll be 24 mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. before I start law school. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's. What do you What do you think about that? Yeah, you are pretty sure? old. I I guess um we either got to get this going, or just <laughs> consider you know another like um another career. <laughs> yeah but that's how people think right i yeah. mean that's that's we hear that every day right yeah well I, I and i would say i can take that concern a little bit more when someone's 28 but it's still no concern i i mean i can under i can sympathize more with why they would feel that way all my friends are already working or some of my friends have graduated from law school and they're already attorneys and here i am i'm just getting started on the law school path and i still think we're talking about a 20-year career here at least, and you're worried yeah. about one of those. Like, it's just, it's, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And maybe you have to stick it out with a job you don't like uh, or something like that, but, and I, I, I don't mean, I mean, everyone has their own circumstances, but I think in the big picture, in the vast majority of cases, it does not matter. What matters that year, is no. where you go and that you're yeah. happy with it. I mean, it's it's gonna affect your immediate like social life and in and like your family and friends and stuff. You know that that I think people people don't ever admit to that, but it's like a lot of times the reason why people feel like they have to go to law school right now is that they want to make their family proud and they want to like you know be able to tell the girls at the bar that they're going to law school now mm -hmm. so that they can get laid. And it's, it, you know, or whatever, yeah. right? They just, they, they want to, like, there's this prestige, they think, that comes with going to law school. Um, uh, yeah, I definitely think that's true, especially with family. There's a sense that, oh, you studied for the LSAT and you took it and now you're studying again? Like, what's going on? Why, why don't you have your life together? Why, why is this so hard for you? 
When I was yeah, when I was uh, going to grad school, I uh, I just took the test without studying for it, and <laughs> yeah, you, and you get that from parents, I think sometimes. Totally, to- yeah. Parent, I mean, boy, parents are not helpful in a lot of cases. Um, I guess that is a kind of an overarching piece of advice that I would like to give to to folks is like. Your parents um, frequently, even if they are lawyers, just don't know what they're talking about when it comes to the LSAT and law school admissions. Um, if they aren't lawyers, they 100% have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to LSAT and law school admissions. And so you really do need to make this decision on your own. Um, if, they're, if they're paying for it, that's a different story. But if you're just gonna go to school and incur all this debt, um, that's you paying it back, not them paying it back. And so I don't, I really think people should stop listening so much to their friends and family, um, especially when you're 23. It's funny because 28 year olds don't usually have the lack of perspective the same way that the 23 year olds, like the 28 year olds are not in as much of a hurry as the 23 year olds mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when you would think it would be the opposite. Yeah. But I think the reason why is because the 28 year olds have seen all their friends wash out of whatever careers they thought they were going to be in. And you know, when you're 28, you've got friends who have moved back home with their parents and you've got like also you, you, you get like you've seen real life, I guess, at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, not that 23 year olds have no perspective. Stop it. Don't send me angry emails. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, um, yeah, the once when when you're 28, it, you seem most people tend to be in less of a hurry. Mm-hmm. Um, because they've kind of seen the way life tends to go and they realize that happiness and, and doing work that's satisfying and financial considerations are all way more important than this, like, I have to achieve the next step in my career kind of a thing. Yeah. I wanted to make one more point, and we're definitely beating this one into the ground, but um, this whole discussion is making me think of the article that we talked about uh, a few months ago, the article about basically the LSAT, how the LSAT protects students. Mm, mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. What was that guy's name? He's an above the law. Oh, writer. I don't. Yeah, I don't remember. Ellie, Ellie, something or other. Um, we should really find that dude and see if he wants to come on the show sometime because I I think he's really interesting. But. Um, You know, in the context of this student of mine who is about to drop, you know, let's just call it $150,000, probably more, Mm -hmm. on law school and living expenses for three years, um, the LSAT, if, if he decided to take another year and improve his LSAT score by five or ten points... I do think that that's a, a situation where the LSAT could be protecting him from making a pretty tragic mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and again, I'm not saying, hey, everybody in the world who has only a 150 LSAT score or whatever it is, don't go to law school. Um, I'm not saying that. Uh, you got to make the decision for yourself. But I am saying that I would probably make a different decision if I were in your shoes, that I might just delay and see if I could get a better LSAT score that puts me into sort of a better range before I, before I dive in and make this huge commitment. Yeah. All right. So, um, 
I was going to add one more thing. It's a, yeah. it's a tangent, though, so I, I feel like we're kind of going on to a new subject here. Have I ever said... People love it when we do tangents, dude. <laughs> they love it. Uh, so he says in here that all that matters to me is passing the bar, which makes sense. He wants to make sure he passes so he can then sure. do what he's uh, been planning to do. Did I, did I tell my bar experience on this show before? I don't remember. I don't know. Let's hear it again. Okay, well... Um, what happened to me was I, I signed up for a course. I don't think I signed up for the Barbary one, but, you know, a similar course. And I got all the huge books that you get. I was taking the bar in Virginia, so I got a huge book. It's three or four inches thick about criminal law in Virginia, um, family law in Virginia, procedural law in Virginia. I, I can't remember all the books. I think there were seven or eight. And the way the class started, at least for me, was start reading about the different criminal laws in Virginia and make flashcards that uh, listed the different, I don't know, considerations that a judge would go through when deciding a particular criminal case or a family dispute. So the one I remember in particular was two people were getting a divorce, I think, and you were challenged with um, dividing up their property, and you had to write a brief essay explaining how the property should be divided under Virginia law. And in that case, I would have to reference my memory and refer to those flashcards I had created and say, okay, well, the seven considerations are this, and so given the facts presented here, the property should be divided in this way. So I did a sample essay. Um, some, I think most bars have essays, right? Is that what's the case in California? California has a full day of essays. Yeah. yeah. So we had a full day of essays as well. And uh, at least in my case, I had to write, I think, eight essays about eight different topics uh, under Virginia law. And when I was preparing for the bar, I wrote this uh, essay based on this divorce. These essays are only like a page long. And I submitted it to the company that I was preparing for, preparing with, and they, they wrote me back and they said, well, you got 50% correct. And I was, ugh, I just remember groaning and feeling like this was gonna be so painful. And I tried again, and I think I got similar results. And I thought to myself, wow, I'm just really not cut out for the bar. This is gonna be a long, painful summer. And when I was, uh, then I went to a soccer game that my wife was playing in, and one of her um, teammates, I don't know how we got on the subject, but she said, Oh, yeah, well, I passed the bar in Virginia or in Illinois. I had a similar problem, but my, um, the tutor I hired to help me prepare for the bar told me, Don't, don't read any of those huge books, don't try to memorize any of this code. Just take the sample essay book, which is literally like a half an inch thick. So this is, we're taking seven books that are three inches thick, throwing them away and picking up a book that's a half an inch thick, uh, just one. And she said, start reading this sample essay book. And in the sample essay book, they give you a sample problem that you would encounter on the bar. And then they give you the model answer. And I read through that book. It had about, I don't know, 200 sample essay questions touching on all the seven different areas of law that were going to be tested. And she said, read that book three times. I read it 
one and a half times and then ended up taking the bar and I, six of the eight essay questions I got were, they weren't exactly the same as the sample questions I was given, of course, but they were very, very similar, you know, on the same vein. And I just said, oh, this is so easy. Two of them, I didn't have familiarity with them and I sort of, I kind of hobbled something together, but um, it was the, it was night and day. It was such, I left the bar and I remember talking to one student who just was way better, way better of a student than I was. And he was feeling nervous about how it went and all this stuff. And I was like, this was, this was just what I've been reading for the past month. It, I, I mean, I totally underperformed even in that regard, but I just passed that advice on to anyone who's preparing for the bar to not try to memorize the law if that's uh, applicable to you and your state. I, I'm not an expert at all. This is just in Virginia. But um, to focus on the sample questions and sample answers, and they're a lot easier to remember because they're specific stories as opposed to legal code. Yeah, right. Um, right. And so I don't know how that at all relates to your experience, but... Did you end up taking the bar or? Oh, no. No. Okay. So you knew. So you didn't. Yeah. I I decided to take it because I still wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, But uh, anyways, that's my advice. Yeah. um, That's really similar to what I've heard about the bar. And uh, it's also really similar to what I would recommend people do while they're in law school. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, in law school, you're going to have mountainous reading assignments which are just simply not going to be tested. And you're also going to have a library full of practice exam questions or old exams. And you can just go in there and check out your professor's old exams, old final exams, and you can study those Mm -hmm. instead of studying anything else. I mean, if you were going to choose between actually reading the textbook and just doing the sample exams, I think it's a no-brainer to just do the sample exams. Yeah, and I don't know why I didn't think about it earlier, but I think part of it was the class. You know, the class delve dove into these these rules and so forth, and I think they're doing it to cover their backs. Right. But um, the funny part of the story is the the exam was the whole day, the essay part at least was, and um, we did three hours in the morning or something like that, and then I sat in my car and ate lunch because this was out in Roanoke or Salem, Virginia. They make us drive really far away. And um, in while I was eating lunch in my car, I decided to li- read or listen to a couple more example uh, questions. And yep. one of those almost verbatim was asked in the, in the second half hour or the second half of the day. I was just, it was a great day for me. <laughs> painful painful nice. on so many levels but but so good too so that's all i have to say awesome awesome yeah great um well should we move on to this yeah. last question yeah so this is bram bram says hi nathan ben a little bit about me i've only started lsat prep within the last week with plans to take the october lsat i bought a three-month self-study plan I've been following the guidelines as best I can. It advocates leaving logic ga- or learning logic games by type. So 
I started out by doing 20, 30 sequencing, 20 or 30 sequencing games or ordering games for the first two days. We haven't taken a diagnostic yet either. So I'm a tad concerned since you guys seem legit. Thank you. And both recommend approaches opposite to what I've done so far. Let's stop there and just, that's, that's one question. I think it's kind of divided up into three questions. Sure. Okay. So maybe we should just yeah, yeah, answer good. that one Thanks. first. Yeah, so what do you uh, think about his uh, self-study plan? There's all these like study plans out there that you can buy. Um, I, I've only just sort of third-hand heard about them. I don't have any of them or use anything similar to them. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they're fine. I mean, I think the point is to just do work, mm -hmm. you know, do just kind of do as much work as you can. Yeah. And, and if the fact that he's doing this plan and he's doing something is a lot better than doing nothing. And so I would just say kind of like, okay, good job. If you like the study plan and it seems like you're making progress, I like the fact that you've done 20 to 30 games. I mean, that's good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like you're putting in a lot of work. Good. Put in a lot of work. Great. Um, my approach is definitely the opposite of this, though, just as he says, um, I would always start with a full practice test, not necessarily all four sections back to back to back to back, but I think you know, you're know you not really doing the LSAT until you're doing timed 35 minute mixed sections. Mm -hmm. So my philosophy as a teacher has always been, let's just start off with the real test and then we'll let the real test tell us what we're missing or let the real test tell us what we don't understand. Um, that's my approach. I'm a bit concerned. The fact that he's doing, it's a lot, man, 20 to 30 sequencing games in a row. Mm -hmm. I feel like he's going to be ingraining the habit of here's how I do a sequencing game when I know that it's a sequencing game. Yep. And I feel like he's not going to be developing the skill, which is a more important skill in my estimation, of recognizing that a game is a sequencing game and responding appropriately. Now, how did you say that? You said you're a tad bit concerned. Is that what you said? I'm a tad bit concerned. <laughs> so here's a situation where I think I'm going to go further than you and say I think it's it's dangerous almost. I just I I feel like that is the the core skill is saying, "Oh, right. this is a sequencing game and I need to just figure out how to set that up." Knowing that it's a sequencing game, I've seen people do this because I, I did this before. I, I gave people 20 to 30 sequencing games or ordering games, and I said, okay, here, go do these and get good at them. And they, they liked it because they said, oh, I, I figured this out. I'm getting good at these. But I would see them as they were doing the game, and they would read the, the letters, and before they've even read the, the paragraph, they start writing seven dashes out. Why are you writing yeah. seven dead? Well, it's a, well, we're going to, you know. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> and really, you can't make that decision. In sequencing games, you can usually recognize it pretty quickly, but sometimes you can't. And sometimes you have to read the whole passage. Sometimes you have to start reading the rules and then say, oh, this really is an ordering game. But now when we're just telling you that, I, I, think, it's a, I, I think it's a waste of time in some ways. I don't think it's a total waste of time, but I think it's, it's deceptive in how much progress he's probably feeling like he's made. Inefficient at, at best and possibly training for the wrong thing, like training, training a skill that is not actually going to... There, there is no sequencing game section on the LSAT. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. right? Uh, same thing for logical reasoning, right? I mean, if you're going to do 100 necessary assumption questions in a row, mm -hmm. you get to a point where you're not even reading the question stem anymore and you're just like immediately going into necessary assumption mode. Yeah. And there is no necessary assumption section on the LSAT. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So why are you practicing that way? Yeah. Um, it, you know, again, I, I go back to my thing of like, hey, you're doing work, that's great. Pat on the back, yes. good job doing work. Yeah. But if your question is, you know, what's the most efficient route, um, I would be doing mixed sections as a primary, you know, foundation of my practice would be mixed sections. Yeah, and I don't have a problem. I mean, maybe he's done with sequencing games now. Like, maybe doing a few sequencing games back to back so you kind of get the idea is, is not a problem. And it's great that he's doing a lot. There's so many out there. But he's definitely going to have to shift gears really soon to jumping around yeah because what he's going to do next i would imagine on this study plan is like he's going to do 20 or 30 grouping, grouping games. games in a row yeah. and then he's going to do 10 or 20 um what are they going to call it they're going to call it like uh those the sequencing games that have two levels on yeah. it advanced <laughs> advanced sequence advanced sequencing <laughs> um I, I don't know i the the games i always say that the games are highly improvisational mm -hmm. and you actually need to learn the skill of improvising mm -hmm. the way you learn the skill of improvising is by improvising mm -hmm. you need to sort of jump into the deep water with a mixed section mm -hmm. look at game number 1 and figure that shit out that's ultimately what it comes down to is you're smart you're a good reader you can read these rules and you can figure that shit out and so, yeah, drilling, boy, 20 to 30 of the same type in a row does seem really crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but, man, there are crazy people out there. Holy shit. I got an email the other day, Ben. I almost forwarded it along to you, but I decided it would be rude um, to the student. I, you know, if the student is listening, thank you for sending me this email. But it was an unbelievably long email. It had much it had a lot of bold in it, it had a lot of italics in it, and it had also a lot of bold italics in it, and it was like a 5,000 word email of lengthily discussing the entire uh, prep process that this girl had gone through. Mm. Mm -hmm. And the entire prep process is she's done every single question on the LSAT three times. Oh, wow. Like, she did every LSAT question by type. Every fucking question on the entire LSAT. She did it divided by type. Ugh. And she's also done every single LSAT like in mixed 35 minute sections. Wow. And <laughs> it's just going on and on and on. Um, that's a way to study. I mean, but I, I'm worried that that's substituting quantity for quality. Yeah. And I'm worried that at, when you're doing some really madness kind of an approach like that, that you're going to be kind of just falling asleep and you're not going to be really engaging enough, uh, not reviewing your mistakes enough, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, just more like just volume. Well, well here's the 5,000 LSAT questions that I'm going to do today and I'm going to miss 1,500 of them, but, you know... I'm doing my work. Yeah.
Um, well, also developing the way I would go. Developing the skill to recognize why an answer choice is correct after you know it is right or wrong uh, is a skill that ends up get that you might develop, but it's not the skill you need. You need the skill to make a decision before you know whether it's yeah. right or wrong. And I'm afraid a lot of people fall into that trap. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I see, after the fact, hoping that eventually yeah. it'll start to come before the fact. Viga. That's what, I mean, that happens a lot when people do too much volume. Yeah. And that, that's where I just kind of go back to my, hey, how about we do one mixed section today, mm -hmm. 35 minutes, mm -hmm. and then ruthlessly review the ones you missed. Mm -hmm. And not just look at the right answer and try to convince yourself that the answer really is B. More like redo the question and see if you can explain it to me. Mm -hmm. You know, tell me why, tell me what the argument is saying, tell me what the question's asking, tell me what you're thinking on this type of a question, make a prediction about what type of an answer you would like to find. And then as you're sorting through the answer choices, tell me why the wrong answers are wrong and tell me why the right answer is right. Yeah. But not just, oh, it's B, let me read B. Oh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, right, I get it. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> you need to go a little bit deeper. And that's, I think, the problem with too much volume, right? It's, like, necessarily just going to make you go shallower. Yeah. All right. And going back to this, I don't think, uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't remember for sure, but I don't think that either of us disagree with doing a lot of the same question type later in your studies if you find a particular problem spot. I think it could be a useful use of your time to target a bunch of necessary assumption questions if you discover after doing mixed sections that you're struggling with them. I still wouldn't sure. do it like a ton, but if you're trying to save some time and zero in on a particular weakness, that can be helpful, but it's all in the context of a much bigger study plan, not the default. Yeah, and even then I would just quickly go back to doing mixed sections again. Yeah, so you can you apply what you, what you learned. Necessary assumption questions do not live in big chunks of 20 in a row. They, you know, they're going to be right next to a sufficient assumption question and they're going to be right next to a must be true question. And you have to be able to tell the difference between those three. Yeah. Not just answer necessary assumption questions after someone tells you it's a necessary assumption question. All right. Okay. So next, next question uh, in his email, Bram says, I, I just attend one of your classes, but I live in Atlanta, and I prefer in-person classes. Do either of you have anyone you'd recommend in the Atlanta area? Do you have any recommendations for Atlanta? I do not have any recommendations for Atlanta, do you? You're a lot closer, but I guess you're still not close. <laughs> still very far, yeah. Um, right time zone. Right time zone. I mean, if I were if I were talking to someone who was in a place where they wanted to attend a live class, um, but I didn't know anyone there, I would say go with. Although I've hammered on them a little bit, I would say go with a company like Test Masters, or Blueprint, or Manhattan. They, Manhattan probably doesn't have a test or a class everywhere, but. Test Masters is pretty far spread out there. Power Score, do not go with Kaplan or. Princeton Review, in my opinion. Um, Absolutely. I would avoid Kaplan. I would avoid Princeton Review. I would go with, yeah, I think I, people have success with Test Masters, Blueprint, PowerScore, and Manhattan. Uh, I think I would probably choose if I had, I, I'm, I feel like Manhattan is probably the best. 
yeah. Manhattan, and then maybe Blueprint, and then maybe Testmasters Power Score or Power Score Testmasters. Mm -hmm. But it it highly depends on who your teacher is. Yeah, that's a if, good point. That's a really good point. If you get lucky and you get a teacher that you really connect with, and you get a teacher who actually gives a shit about teaching, then you know you can do great. I think that the people who took my Power Score class when I was a Power Score teacher, I think they did well because I love teaching and I wanted to do it and I was, you know, I was into it. And it didn't matter that I was an hourly employee. I gave them all my phone number and said like, hey, I'm here to help you. Like, let's do this. I, I'm a nerd. I want to see you be successful about this. And so you can get, you can get lucky and you can get a great teacher. I think you can also get really unlucky. And, you know, the, the person who's been teaching a power score class for 20 years, uh, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but I just wonder why they're still working for PowerScore as an hourly employee making PowerScore rich mm -hmm. at that point. So I don't know. I don't know what they would do if you called them up and said, hey, I want to meet my teacher before I sign up with your sign up for your class. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling they would tell you, sorry. Yeah, I wonder. I think like a company like Blueprint, which is a little more modern, would say yes. I think they let you sit in on the class for free. And usually okay. it's the same teacher in the area, I think. But yeah, I would just yeah. ask some questions. Figure out if it's the first class they're ever teaching or, you know, what. I mean, even at Kaplan, to be fair, you can have a really good teacher who actually goes against what Kaplan is advocating. I've talked to some of them. Um, and they kind of actually mock Kaplan. Because apparently, I didn't know this, apparently a Kaplan you have to say the word Kaplan with a lot of the stuff that you teach. So you're like, oh, this is the Kaplan necessary assumption technique or something like that. Oh, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> and so if you get someone like that who recognizes the craziness and is a good teacher themselves, uh, you can succeed at Kaplan. I just think it's far less likely to happen. Unfortunately, it's also the company that's most ubiquitous. Yeah, Kaplan and Princeton. Their classes are everywhere, their books are everywhere, and they're just not good at all at teaching the LSAT. Yeah. Um, I just yelped it. I mean, the truth is I would yelp it. Mm, that's and, a good idea. Uh, I yelped LSAT in Atlanta, and it looks like Blueprint has four reviews, four five-star reviews. Mm. Um, it looks like there's some dude named Zach that people are mentioning in all of the reviews. Three of the positive reviews mention someone named Zach. Uh, these are reviews from, yeah, there's one from this year even, one from June this year. So it seems like Zach might still be there and still be teaching. Mm -hmm. um, that's where I would go if I were in Atlanta. I also would maybe reconsider my commitment to an in-person class, being that there are a lot of really good online resources, uh, including, I think, my online class, so if, if um, Bram has not yet watched any of the videos on my website, I might steer him that way to just check it out. That's foxlsat.com. And um, the, maybe that the format of my online class would, would work for you. But if not, if you're going to go in person for sure, I think I would check out the Blueprint class in Atlanta. Cool. All right, so the last one is a good, good question that I get a lot. As far as the logic games go, I'm struggling with understanding when I should break the master game board into sub-game boards and even sub-sub-game boards. For example, on prep test 
53, section two, game four. I just put T in second place. I know that's not gonna make sense, but maybe we can build off of this um, and begin the questions. The seven sage video explanation actually suggested that you break up the master game board into four sub game boards. Curious to hear what you guys think and whether they are any hard and fast rules regarding this. So um, I refer to these sub game boards as worlds, and I think you do as well, right? Yeah, I would always call it worlds. Yeah, dividing it into two worlds is kind of the primary operation. And in power score, what do they call it? Just so that people who are studying different approaches can. Power score called it identify the possibilities trademark. Trademark, yes, good. Trademark. Yes, thank They're you. They're constantly trademarking their stupid little slogans so that they can sue other test prep companies for intellectual property, which is pretty distasteful. Um, uh, yeah, I always just called it, well, I can see how this works in one way and it works in this other one main way, and those are the only two ways, and I would just call those worlds. Yes. You can call them templates if you want, but, but I always think I tend to usually just call it worlds, world one and world two. Cool. So just to, if you're new to the game, just to give you a, a clear idea of what we're talking about here, Let's imagine that you were given an ordering game that you were trying to order people, six people, and they told you that Sally had to go second or third. Um, I probably would not create worlds in this kind of game, but knowing that Sally could go only second or third, you could consider the possibility of creating a diagram in which Sally is second, and then creating another diagram in which Sally is third, because those are the only two possibilities. In our jargon, that would be two worlds, Sally in second, Sally in third, and then we could continue building those diagrams or those worlds up based on the assumption that Sally is second or third. And what Bram is asking is, when do I take the time to create these two separate worlds, and when do I not? When do I just leave the rule as is, Sally has to be second or third, and then go into the questions? Yep, and this is where I think Ben and I both give totally unsatisfying answers to our classes when we receive this question yes. all the time, yes. which we do. Mm -hmm. I always say uh, it depends. There's an art to it. I say it's a technique that you need to try to practice and you need to look out for opportunities to make worlds, mm -hmm. but it doesn't work for every game. Um, when it works, it really, really works though. Mm -hmm. And I don't know anybody who's good at the logic games who doesn't occasionally do this. Yeah. Like I, I don't think you're gonna make it through all four games very often if you don't sometimes use worlds to attack. It's, it's, a, it's a very proactive way of doing the games, right? Mm -hmm. you're, you're doing work in advance before you read the questions, you're going into making these two templates, you're figuring a bunch of things out, and it's, boy, when it works, it can really, really work. Like advance, it can answer many of the questions before you even read the questions. Yeah. The way I teach it, I don't know how you teach it, Ben, but the way I teach it is I'm looking for two things. Mm -hmm. So the first thing that I'm looking for is relatively easy to spot, and that's what we were talking about with Sally, who can go either second or third. I call that a dividing line. It gives me 
it gives me a reason to to make two worlds mm -hmm. where I can say, well, on the one hand, she can go second, and on the only other hand, she can go third. Mm -hmm. That's my dividing line because there's only those two ways of doing it. There's no other all other possibilities, right? There are no other worlds. That's actually really important. There can't be any other worlds that you forget about. There ha you have to be making worlds that do include all possibilities. Yes. So a world where Sally goes second and a world where Sally goes third is fine if she can indeed only go in those two places. But that's just the first criteria that I'm looking for. The second thing that I'm looking for is I want dominoes to be falling over immediately in at least one of those two worlds. Mm -hmm. Preferably, I would like dominoes to be falling in both of the worlds. Mm -hmm. But frequently, it's actually useful frequently to make two worlds, even if, if like all the dominoes fall over in one of the worlds, it can be totally worthwhile to do it. Yeah. So it's like a balancing test, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. I want as few possible worlds as I can find, and I want as much shit to happen as possible in those worlds. Yeah. I'm the game specifically here, this is prep test 53 section 2 game 4. I do think that it's a good game for making worlds, but the idea that we're going to set out to make four worlds to begin with is a little bit scary. Yeah. Um four worlds is a lot of work and four worlds is only going to be helpful if a lot of shit happens in basically all four of those worlds. Yeah. Now I would, I don't know what happens in that video that he references, but, um, I'm not, I don't, I do create four worlds more often than I might expect, but that's mainly because I create two and I'm planning yeah. to create two. And then all of a sudden I'm like, wait a sec, I could split this and then be done. And I would have all four scenarios of the game or whatever. And so, or at least very close to something like that, and then I'll create four. But yeah, but it's very rare that you're going to set out to make four yeah. worlds from the get go. So, if you feel like, oh, yeah. I have to do four to make this work, I probably would not do it. Yeah. So the in the in our Sally example, we might have suspected, oh, let's make two worlds based on you know a world where Sally goes in the second spot and a world where Sally goes in the third spot. But then if you notice that, oh, wait a minute now. You know, um, George can only go third or fifth. And then in the world where Sally goes third, then George has to go fifth. Mm -hmm. But in the world where Sally goes second, George can go third or fifth. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we'll split that world into two. Yeah. A world where Sally's second and George is third and a world where Sally is second and George is fifth. Using the um, same criteria as before, if it seems likely the dominoes are going to fall. Right, you're looking for, you, you need a dividing line, you need a reason to believe that there are only these two scenarios. Or sometimes there'll be a dividing line where it's like, well, there's only these three scenarios. Mm -hmm. And then you want dominoes to start falling inside of those scenarios. And then, yeah, you might split a scenario or split two scenarios into four scenarios. The thing that you have to watch out for is that when you split it from two into four and then you split it from four into eight... <laughs> It's now really likely that you're wasting time. Yes. Because you Almost probably certainly. didn't, you did not probably, you probably could have gotten by with templates that more broadly had it broken down. I don't really need to go down to the level of detail of where I've got 16 different scenarios and I've got 100% completion of all 16 scenarios. Yeah. 
I mean, that's not the game. You know, they they are not. <laughs> that's they're not. They could they could they could change the LSAT logic games and make it just hey, tell me all the possible scenarios. I mean, that'd be a good question, actually. That'd be interesting. But well, yeah, that's not what they're actually testing you on. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say those two things because I actually say the exact same thing. I, I don't use the same language as you. I say... Good, because I trademarked it, dude. I'm going to sue you. <laughs> you don't anyone tell Nathan. Um, uh, just to put it in different words for, for people, uh, but the, the same idea, yours are a little more artful, honestly, so it's probably more memorable. But I say there has to be an implicit or explicit or statement. There has to be some sort of, like you said, dividing line. There has to be some sort of either or situation. And like you said, it may be two options or three options. Um, and then the second thing I say is, you say you have to have dominoes fall. And uh, again, this is not as artful, but the idea is it has to seem promising. There has to be, there's, there must, you must feel like there's potential or value in knowing that Sally is second or knowing that Sally is third. And that's where I think people roll their eyes as they say, it has to feel promising, it has to seem promising. That's what I want to know. Should I do it or should I not do it? And that's where I say, look, this is going to come with experience. You're going to start to get this itch. You're going to say, wait a sec. I can tell based on the other rules that if I knew that Sally was second, um, it does seem like, well, right away, G is going to have to be, George is going to have to be fifth or whatever. And if I knew that, it seems like I might know something else. And the whole point of creating the worlds is to then start writing down what you feel like you can see happening, but you want to keep it organized, so you're going to write it down. But um, if you don't have that feeling, if you look at Sally being second as a dead end, then it's not promising. It doesn't seem like dominoes are going to fall then that's where you say, forget it. I'm not going to do two right. worlds, even though I have two options for Sally. I'll, but it could be totally worth it if the other world gets almost all the way filled out. Yes, yeah, so I am I am looking at both of these things, uh, both worlds, and trying to feel like, is there any promise for either option here? Um, yeah. And obviously, the more promise you have for one or both worlds, the more likely it is that you want to do it. And when I do create the worlds, I do two, I do two things. One is I will create the two templates or the two diagrams and I will start by writing in the two options in both. In other words, I'll write Sally in second in one and I'll write Sally in third in the other. I won't do one diagram and then go over to the next diagram and start from scratch. You have to create that dividing line up front so you don't forget where you're splitting these two diagrams. Yeah, absolutely. That's a pretty big mistake that I see students make all the time is that they'll they'll make they'll oh, I'm going to make two worlds here and they'll just go, "Well, Sally can go second and then they'll start doing a bunch of shit." And then they'll go, "Oh, and Sally can go third, and then they'll they'll accidentally make assumptions about that third world, that other world on the basis of how the first world yeah, worked out." Yeah. And it's like, "No, no, 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 no. Let's make a I when I do it now on the board, I actually literally like do a, a like draw the dividing line yeah. first, mm -hmm. you know, like draw a line down the middle of the board and then make two templates that are completely blank mm -hmm. and then put Sally in the second spot in one of the templates and put Sally in the third spot in the other template mm -hmm. and be confident now that okay, all possible scenarios have to go through one or the other of these two worlds." Yeah. Now I can start taking some steps into either of those two worlds or in, into one world and then the other world. No, exactly. And then 
after I create those two worlds, I will go to the world that uh, seems most promising first because I just want to move as quickly as possible. There's no point in sort of scratching your head on the one that's harder to develop. Right. Totally. Yeah. And it's like, I'm just looking for the domino. Show me the first domino that falls mm -hmm. in, in one or the other world. And then, yeah, I end up, I do end up spending probably, uh, I'll, I'll stay in that one world because once one domino falls, then it's very likely that another domino falls and then another two dominoes fall. And then I'll just go as far, I'll follow those implications as far as those implications will take me. Then I'll go back and look at the other world. Yeah. And a lot of times in the other world, like nothing really happens. There's one world where it like, things get tight mm -hmm. and a bunch of shit happens. In the other world, maybe it's open and there's not that much stuff that happens. But still, that can be a really powerful, really effective approach to the game. By the way, uh, I should point out here, a, a mistaken dividing line that I think a lot of people treat as a dividing line, but they shouldn't, would be a situation where the rule says, if Sally is third, then John is fourth, or something like that. And they'll say, yeah, you... You can use that rule to make two worlds. You just have to be really careful how you do it. Yeah, because I think what they say is they say, okay, well, I could do a situation where Sally is third, and then I could do a situation where Sally is not third, which is a dividing line. Those are two options, but I don't feel like the second one, it's deceptive. It's not, where are you going to put Sally? Sally could go anywhere. So you really, you have like a non-second world. So now you've just created a diagram where... No, I'm not sure I agree with that. I I know what you're saying. I, I think that the the tragic error would be if someone said, okay, the rule again is if Sally's third, then John is fourth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the rule? Yep. I, if you start with a world where Sally is third and a world where Sally is not third, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think you're fine. You can then go into the world where Sally is third, and since Sally's third, John has to be fourth, mm -hmm. and then that might lead to a whole bunch of other shit. Yeah, certainly could. The thing that... The thing that you can't do is go into the second world where Sally is not third and say, okay, now John can't be fourth. And that's the mistake that I would see all the time. Yeah, or maybe sometimes forget what it means when they say Sally is not third. Sometimes I think there's this idea of like, well, it'd be really nice if Sally could go second in this world and then they have two worlds that are... They start arbitrarily putting Sally in some place in that world when all they should have done is just put Sally not third. Just right, Sally is not third. And then third. moved on, yeah. The, the beauty of that approach, when that one works, and I actually would teach people to do this frequently, if there's only one if-then rule, and if that if-then rule is like a pain in the ass, mm -hmm. you can sometimes kill that if-then rule by making a world where the rule applies mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then fully apply the rule mm -hmm. and then make a world where the sufficient condition can't happen. So now Sally can't go third. Mm -hmm. Well, in that scenario, the rule doesn't even exist. Yeah. Yeah. So now you might end up with one completed scenario like, oh, hey, look, actually, when Sally's third, not only does John have to be fourth, but all this other cascade of stuff happens. Yeah. And then now the rule is dead because in the other world, we don't have to worry about that rule as long as we make sure that we don't put Sally in the third spot. Sure. No, that so, makes sense. Just have to be very it, careful what you mean by Sally's not third, and as long as you recognize yeah. that, that can be really valuable. Yeah, you, it's an advanced technique. You know, it, it does work sometimes, and when there's... Sometimes if I see a single if-then rule, mm -hmm. I, w I might use that approach to just kill that rule, yeah. where I'll be like, you know, all the other rules are pretty easy to deal with. I don't like this if-then rule because it's too complicated. You know, some it might be like a... Um, 
if Sally's third, then O has to be before L or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what? I don't want to think about this. Mm -hmm. So you could make a world where Sally's third and O has to be before L. And then in the other world, you just say Sally can't be third. Now the rule is dead. Yeah. Yeah. The other time, um, and this is actually kind of like basics, I think, of making when to make two worlds. Um, a, if, if there is a single if and only if rule, mm -hmm. that is frequently a good time to make two worlds. Because you necessarily are going to get two dominoes in both worlds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, uh, if there's a rule that says P is included if and only if W is included, mm -hmm. well, that's an in-out game probably. And you can make a world where P and W are both in, mm -hmm. and you can make a world where P and W are both out. Yeah. And now you've killed this if and only if rule. You don't have to think about the if and only if anymore. Mm -hmm. And you've had you've got a, a a block now, right? You've got two players in each world where you know exactly where they go. Yeah. Yeah. So that can be, I think, a pretty effective approach um, sometimes when that works. Uh, the last. Well, at least the last idea I have on this topic is that um, if you go into a game and there's an opportunity to create worlds and it's a good opportunity, in other words, it's promising or there's dominoes that are going to fall, but you don't take it and you go into the questions and you start doing what I would suggest is doing the if questions first, it's not, it's not like you've done the game incorrectly. Uh, you're going to create diagrams as you go through and answer the questions and, you know, maybe it could have been faster if you had the worlds, but you're still going to, if you approach the questions correctly, you're still going to go through them relatively fast. And um, I think of worlds as more of on a continuum. Like sometimes it would have been really, really good to do them. Sometimes it would be really, really bad. But a lot of games are just somewhere in between. And you're just shifting the time from the questions to your diagram or from the diagram back to the questions, depending on whether or not you create worlds. Yeah, I, I think it's very rare that I would say this is the only way to do the game. Yeah. I mean, I think that's actually kind of a myth that people, that people get in their head. Like, I, in, in fact, um, I'm afraid, you know, Bram almost here was saying, because Seven Sage said, do this into four sub-game boards, I just don't want him to get the idea that like that's the way to do the game. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there's probably better ways and probably worse ways of doing the game, and that's just what they happen to do in that in that instance, right? Mm -hmm. I teach um, I teach without the answers. I teach without any notes or templates or anything, right? I teach off of just like the blank naked tests mm -hmm. when I teach, mm -hmm. and that means that I will frequently do a game. One day I'll do it one way, and the other day I might just see it in a slightly different way and just do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's plenty of times where worlds would have worked, but maybe they're not necessary. Yeah. There's times where worlds will crush a game, but you could have grind, you know, grinded your way through it if you hadn't seen that opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, I tell people a lot of times, like I give them like extra credit, you know, homework assignments, sort of. Um, hey, you know, now that I think about it. We didn't do worlds on this game, but you know, if if G goes fifth or if G goes third, that's the only two places where G can go. Mm -hmm. And I'm I got an inkling that a bunch of things might happen if we did that. Mm -hmm. 
So there's an extra, you know, little homework assignment for you if you want to geek out on this game for a little while longer. Why don't you go make two worlds, one where G goes third and one where G goes fifth, and like see what happens. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I just thought of was when you're going through the questions themselves, I think people don't take advantage of worlds as much as they could. Uh, oftentimes, I will be given an if clue. They'll say if T is fourth or something like that. And I'll say, oh, if T is fourth, then N has to be fifth or sixth. And that doesn't really help me a whole lot. But if I quickly create two diagrams where N is fifth and another one where N is sixth, I can just totally dominate that question. And I feel like if I don't hesitate, if I just keep moving forward and create those two options, I can definitely get the right answer. I can probably use those diagrams again later in the game for other questions. And so I feel like it's worth it, but many people probably hesitate because they yeah. don't want to take the time to do that. I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I find myself doing that all the time. Uh, you know, yeah, if G's third, and it's like, ah, oh, well, there's this other guy that could go fifth or sixth. Well, then, okay, go ahead and just pencil those two scenarios out. Mm -hmm. Because if you try to keep it in your head, you're just not, it's, your head is, I'm sorry, you know, you're smart, I'm smart, but I'm not as smart as writing it down where I can't possibly make a mistake. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, quickly sketching those two templates or those two worlds, even within one of the if questions, mm -hmm. is, a, is a very strong technique, and it works a lot. I mean... I'm tempted to say, and I think it's actually true, there's a strong correlation between how much writing is on your page and how many points you get in the section. There's a really high correlation between those two things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can frequently just glance at somebody's page and I can tell if they did basically good or basically bad mm -hmm. just based on how much and how kind of neatly they've yeah, written neatly. on the page. That's a key. I don't um, know. It's kind of unfortunate, but yeah. Staying organized. I mean, I have shitty like kindergarten-style handwriting, mm -hmm. but um, the neater and more I write, the better I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing, the one counter to that is that if you're writing because you're testing answer choices, yeah, 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 that's not good. And that's what that's funny because everybody wants to do that, right? Everybody just dives right in and starts testing A, testing B, testing C, and instead, what you should have done is you should have taken the clue that they gave you, yeah. And then followed the implications of that clue as far as you could go, even if it's going into two different templates. Then follow those templates all the way to the end, and then now try to answer the question. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I almost never test answer choices. No. I just don't end up testing answer choices. I mean, and if I get in that situation, that's another thing, is I will just jump in and start testing them. I think a lot of people fail in the games because they they hesitate or they I, i'm not suggesting that that should be the default operation that's really the, like the last resort but if i find myself in that situation then i will start testing them but what you're talking about here is a different situation and that's how most people start out is they start out by writing down the clue and then say okay i now know g is third let's go see what answer choice a does is this something right that could which be one of the following must be true and then they just start testing a yeah Instead of what they should have done is taken that new condition, G must be third, and then gone back to the rules and seen, you know, what what else has to happen once you put G in the third spot. That's that's the big mistake. Does this happen to you in class where I'll I'll do that? I'll I'll say, okay, G is third. Oh, if G is third, then then this has to happen and this has to happen. What else has to happen? Everybody and they say, and then we, we write it, then we go, okay, let's go answer the question. And then there's someone who says, but 
But the answer is D, and I saw that right away after you started drawing your yeah. first inference, and you just wasted all this time. And I don't know. What do you say to that? I I always just say, good. I'm I'm happy to overkill a question. I don't. I overkill is totally fine. Mm -hmm. What I want is I want by the time I turn to the answer choices, I want to answer it in five seconds. Yeah. And it, so. If, if the dominoes are falling, right, I'm greedy for the sound of the dominoes falling. Mm -hmm. And if they give me a clue and that clue starts knocking over dominoes, even if it makes, I have to do two different templates and see what dominoes fall in both of those templates, it's not going to take me very long, as long as I just keep moving, it's not going to take me very long to follow those two templates all the way till the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then when I answer the question, I'm going to answer the question 100% certainty in five seconds. Yep. And yes, there are times where if I would have scanned the answer choices, I might see that I had already answered the question a couple steps earlier. Mm -hmm. But the problem with that approach is that then you're going to be constantly going back and forth. But, you know, did I answer it now? Yeah. Oh, I didn't answer it yet. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to go back and keep working yep. and work a little more. Oh, I made one more step. Okay, does that, is that the answer? Yeah. And then now you're going to the answer choices again. That's not efficient. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like that's... You're trying to save five seconds and you're going to end up costing yourself, you know, you're going to make a mistake or you're going to get stuck or you're going to whatever. Um, I would just overkill it. it. It's it's a little bit like, again, doing the game, doing the test on like a higher plane, mm -hmm. like being the boss of the test rather than letting the test boss you around. You're going to just be the boss of the test. And so especially with the if questions, I mean, they gave me a new clue. I'm going to I'm going to be the driver now. Yeah. In fact, I don't. I literally don't even read the rest of the question when they give me a new clue, right? If yeah, they say, I don't either. If L goes third, which one of the? And I just tune out. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm not. I don't care what you're asking me. Mm -hmm. You've given me ammunition. You've given me a new clue. If L goes third, I'm going to make a new diagram. I'm going to pencil that out. I'm going to figure out all a bunch of other shit that happens, and then you can ask me whatever question you want to ask me yeah. because it'll be really easy to answer once I've figured out all these implications of what happens when L goes third. Furthermore, I'm going to end up with a completed scenario or maybe a couple scenarios. And like you say, Ben, those scenarios are going to help you potentially to answer all the rest of the questions on the test. So it's not wasted effort anyway. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. We need to get some other people on here that tell us we're all wrong so we can have to disagree. Some, yeah. Get some people to disagree with yeah, us. Yeah, find someone who would disagree with that point. Yeah, send us email if you disagree with us about anything that we say. Um, Please, uh, please get in touch. And if you have questions, again, please get in touch. We've done several shows in a row now where all we've done is just answer listener questions. And I think they've seemed to me to be some of our best shows. So, um, yeah, thanks for the feedback and uh, keep it coming. Yeah, so that was all our questions for today. It's, I think we're getting close to two hours here. So I would. We're over two hours. Over I think it's hours. definitely yeah. time to wrap it up. This might be our longest episode ever. Yeah, maybe Sean can save us. That part was boring, taking that out. <laughs> yeah well all right everybody thanks yeah thanks for listening and um you can always send us questions at help at thinking lsat.com or if you want to email us individually nathan is nathan at fox lsat.com and i'm ben at strategyprep.com. um i don't have anything else to say nathan do you no that's it let's wrap it up cool. we'll be back in a couple weeks thanks yeah all right thanks everybody